0: Good morning. What a wonderful privilege it is, humbling, to bring the Word of God to his people. I pray that that's what you've come here today to do, to receive the Word of God from praying and preaching and singing and all of the other things that we are doing in our corporate worship service. So by now, you have probably noticed that if you, if you did not catch Trey's announcement at the very beginning, you've probably noticed that the order of our service is a little different. Uh, maybe uh, more songs on the front end than you had anticipated or new elements that, you, uh, that you're just not used to. Today is the first day of our new order of service and it is listed on our website. So please go there and check that out if you want to kind of read through it or if you want to print it off so that you have that. Uh, When you come to our corporate worship, just to give you a little bit of background to this, this day, this, this change in April, the elders went away on a, on a weekend retreat. And our focus on this specific retreat was on our corporate worship, the health and intentionality of our corporate worship. We, this was the second retreat that we had taken. We've taken with the first one we took was uh, focused on our, Our founding documents as a church. So really looking at our constitution and bylaws, our doctrinal statement and other things like that. But this past retreat, we focused on the topic of of corporate worship. And throughout the history of Four Corners, corporate worship uh, has been marked by authenticity a kind of God-centeredness that pervades everything that goes on throughout the corporate worship service, and intentionality. This has been the case uh, from the days in the Alamo early on in the history of Four Corners. There has been these emphases, and these emphases have, have continued all the way up until this time. The purpose in in our elders retreat was not to overhaul what what was already in place, but rather to continue and to mature this level of intentionality that was already present. So what are the purposes of these changes as we just briefly kind of touch on this before we get into the sermon? The first thing is that every service is a representation of the gospel. So you'll notice at the very beginning of the service, there's the adoration of God, which we have through the call to worship. And the song of adoration. And it is in the nature of the the, the soul as he or she engages with God that the, the glory of God is seen and then the sinfulness of man is seen. That's how the gospel works. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they see two things simultaneously. The glory, perfection and holiness of God and his justice, his righteousness. And at the same time, they are then confronted with their own sinfulness. And it is through that that they run to the Savior. And that's the third part is we have our, our uh, assurance, our song of assurance, which is where we're assured, not, we're not left in our sinful state, we're assured of the fact that in Christ our sins have been forgiven. We confess our sins, we recognize them, But then we realize that in Jesus Christ, they have been forgiven and so on and so forth. So the the purpose really of these changes is that the the way the gospel affects the individual soul is communicated even through the structure of the service. So that's a way of evangelizing us as we come every Sunday to worship God together. So another aspect of this is that there's a clear reason why we do everything we do. And so every song, every prayer, every element of the service is by nature intentional. It's not just kind of arbitrary. It's not just something that we, that we do because we feel like it, but it's intentionally guided. It has a reason behind it. Also, and this is, this is perhaps slightly less important, but I think nonetheless still important, we are really aligning ourselves with the way Christians have worshipped for 2,000 years. One of the interesting things that you can see if you go back and study the history of worship is that whether it's in the the sort of orthodox, the the orthodox vein or in the Roman Catholic vein or since the Protestant Reformation and all of the different offshoots of Protestants that throughout the history of the church, Christians have structured their worship of God in a similar way, in a representing of the gospel kind of way. And so we're really just aligning ourselves with the way Christian people have worshiped their heavenly father since christ since the beginning of the church also we're recognizing the importance of things like public reading of scripture and prayer uh, paul tells timothy to not neglect this to to be sure that there's the public reading of scripture and also that there are prayers prayed within the context of the of the corporate body gathering together so we do not want to neglect these things ultimately These changes are about the glory of God and the good of his people, that as God is lifted up from the very beginning of the service and his glorious gospel is communicated through the service, he's glorified by that. And not only is he glorified by that, but he's also glorified in in the good that that does to us. As we come face to face with the truth of the gospel freshly every single Sunday. Regardless of the lyrics of the individual songs. And regardless of the content of the sermon or whatever text that we're in. That every Sunday we're reminded, even by the mere structure of the service, we're reminded of this gospel. So it is for God's glory and it's for our good. Nonetheless, we recognize that you may have questions about some of these changes you may have some thoughts or whatever that they might whatever might come to your mind so we would invite you to come and talk with us as elders come and talk to mike or walt or ken or myself and we'll be happy to kind of walk through uh, why we're doing these things and and we'll talk through individual elements if that's what you desire so please feel open and free to do that okay well with that being said, today we continue working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We have been in the Sermon on the Mount for a good while now. We're in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. So let me get you to go ahead and go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. That's where we're going to be picking up today. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. So we're getting pretty close to the end of chapter 6, and, and then we'll be in chapter 7. So we, we're, we're well into this series on the Sermon on the Mount. And so far we've seen a number of major themes since we, since we began with the beginning of chapter 5. We've seen the basic character of a Christian, which is essentially what we were looking at when we came to the Beatitudes. We were looking there at the characteristics of kingdom citizens. What does it, what does it mean, what does it look like to be a Christian? What is, the, what is the character of a Christian? What, what should it really be? What are the ingredients present in the heart and life of an individual Christian? That's what we looked at in verses 3 to 12 of chapter 5. As we looked at the, char- the basic character of a Christian. Then we went to the societal impact of a Christian. We see from over here on, on this wall, Matthew 5, 13 to 16, that Christians are called salt and light. Salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so we know that Christians are not just to sort of be in a little enclave somewhere, just hidden away, gathering and and doing our thing inwardly. And then the world's just sitting out there. But that God intends for Christians to have a particular character and then to sort of spread and share that character, to extend that character to the world around us. That we're, we're supposed to have an impact on the world. We're supposed to have an impact on society. So that's what we looked at in verses 13 to 16 of chapter 5. And then we came to the ethical framework of a Christian. So Jesus is dealing in his day with how the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that time, were misappropriating and misinterpreting and even undermining the scripture that had been received by that time by the Jews. And so they were turning scripture around. And what Jesus comes along and says is that we are to live out God's word as fulfilled in him and living it out from the heart for the good of our neighbor. As one of God's children. And so Jesus holds up the ethical framework of the religious teachers of his day. And he puts a big X on it. He says that's absolutely not righteousness. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He says you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. There has to be something categorically different. And that's what Jesus is dealing with in those verses. Chapter 5 verses 17 to 48. And then recently we we looked at the religious practice of a Christian. That's what we picked up when we entered into chapter 6, verse 1. We looked at uh, fasting and prayer and the giving of alms, the, the giving giving to the poor. And these were the religious practices of Christians. And Jesus describes how this is to happen. And we spent, while we were going through this period, we spent quite a bit of time on prayer. So just to give you a sense for where we're at, because we've been we've been so long in this uh, this glorious well of prayer, which is I hope has has filled our hearts with joy in God and has enhanced our, our walk with Christ and has enhanced our understanding of his glory. But now we need to kind of come up from that and realize that our discussion of prayer was situated within this larger discussion of Christian religious practices. Jesus was saying to them that you're not to do your religious practices, whether it's prayer or fasting or giving to the poor. You're not to do these to be seen by people that they might praise you, but rather you are to do these before the eyes of God alone. And that is where Jesus ends. That's what Jesus ends with in verse 18. And that pretty much puts us where we are today today we begin looking at another section of the Sermon on the Mount which I would call the daily pursuits of a Christian. what are we pursuing? What are we chasing after? So go ahead and turn with me you're there Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 to 20. We're going to read these verses. let me just ask you to stand for the reading of God's word if you will. The first question that comes to mind, as we think about the daily pursuits of a Christian, is this, where is your treasure? That's the big question to put before your eyes this morning. Where is your treasure? So let's read these words. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. This is the word of God. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, Where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his help. Need the illumination of the Holy Spirit if we are to rightly understand His Word, if we are to be open to the application of it to our own lives and hearts. So let's ask for that now, believing in fact that we're not just doing this. I'm not just asking this because this is this time in the service. We really do believe that when we ask God to give us wisdom and to apply His Word to our hearts, He does it, He works. So this is not a vain prayer. It is something that we are asking right now for our God to do this morning here. Our Father in heaven, we glory in you through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that in Christ all of our sins are washed away. We thank you, Father, that in Jesus we have been Made partakers of the divine nature. That we have been reborn. That our hearts have been renewed. That our minds have been transformed. That we no longer live according to the flesh. But we live according to the spirit. We. Thank you, Father, that, that Christ stands as our intercessor at your right hand. That his righteousness is our righteousness. And that he will usher us into your presence forever. Where, you, where he has prepared a place for us. That we will be with him forever. We praise you, Father, that you are working your kingdom purposes out in every life. In every Christian life. And so, Father, we pray for those of us this morning who are Christians, who belong to your Son, that you will conform us into his image this morning in real concrete ways through the ministry of your word, that you will apply your word to our hearts. Father, we're also praying that if there are those among us who are unconverted, their hearts have not been changed. They do not know you as Father. They do not trust in Jesus Christ his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life would you change those hearts today father we ask would you convert sinners to saints and would you draw us all to the glorious christ that we would see him we know that he died that he might bring many sons to god that he might bring many people to glory And so we thank you for him. We pray that he will be lifted up and that his words this morning will be rightly understood from Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Father, we ask that you will supply our needs, that you will forgive us of our sins and protect us now from the devil. That every heart and every mind will be tuned in to your word and that the distractions, the thorns, the things that choke out the word would be pushed away by your spirit through your angelic powers. Father, that you would protect this place and protect every ear and every eye and every heart, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for our sermon this morning is Assessing Our Treasure. And there are four things that we really need to consider as we walk through these verses 19 to 21. First, the activity. Then the durability. Thirdly, the idolatry. And then fourth, the trajectory. The activity, the durability, the idolatry, and the trajectory. So let's first go to the activity. The very first thing to realize is that there is an activity that is common to all people everywhere since Adam and Eve. No one is excluded from this category, what I'm about to say. And this activity is that we are all laying up. And storing up treasures. Every person here this morning is doing that. You're doing that. I'm doing that. We're storing up. We're laying up. We're gathering. We're collecting. That's what human beings do. We are all investing in something. Now, this I think may come to a May come as a surprise to you. If you're not a particularly busy, ambitious person, because we might be tempted to think that when we say that someone is, is sort of laying up and storing up treasures, treasures of this world, treasures on earth, we might tend to associate that with the really ambitious, busy kind of person. Just the the Martha kind of person who's just too busy with life just going on building, building, building and doing and doing and doing. And so for those of us maybe here this morning who are a a little more chilled, a little more relaxed, maybe a little more casual, not so intense or ambitious, maybe you see yourself as quite content. I'm just quite content with life. Maybe complacency would describe you. But the point is that This is not just for the busy, ambitious person. This is for every single person. Because the truth is that the person who is utterly slothful, who does nothing day in, day out with his or her life, has no ambition whatsoever, no drive, no motivation, is not busy at all, is like every other person storing up, laying up something. It's just a little different. So don't think this morning that if you fall into that latter category, that this does not apply to you. You are storing up. You are laying up. Every single one of us is. Even now, as our minds think. And Jesus tells his disciples to invest in one direction rather than the other direction the heavenly over the earthly. He says this, essentially, do not go about collecting treasures on earth, but spend your days collecting treasures in heaven. Now notice, I didn't say spend your months or spend your years. I think Jesus intends for us to think daily. We learned that when we when we had the Lord's Prayer. We saw that when we come to that fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread, we realize that we have a daily need from God. Every single day we come to God in prayer. Every single day we are focusing on one thing or another. And so we spend our days, you will spend today, you will spend today, Christian, storing up A kind of treasure or laying up or collecting or gathering a kind of treasure. What treasure will it be? So what are these heavenly treasures? What are these treasures in heaven? Well, first, I think we just must go with the obvious. Heavenly treasures are things done in a Godward direction. In heaven essentially means towards God. So think of it that way. Lay up for yourselves treasures towards God. The same thing as saying lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. We know this from the passage of scripture that Mike read earlier. Luke chapter 12 verses 13 to 21. The parable of a rich man whose land produced much. So what happens as we listen to that earlier? He builds bigger barns for grain. And for goods. And his attitude is this. I will say to my soul. Soul. You ever talk to your soul? The psalmist does. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Well, that's not what this guy says. He says, soul. You have ample goods. Laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. Jesus describes this kind of person As one whose life is focused on the abundance of possessions. He says that right before he goes into this parable. So what is the end result of such a life? Such an attitude. Such a focus. Such a pursuit. What's the end result of that life? This is what is is said in verses 20 to 21. But God said to him at the hour of his death. Fool! This night... Your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? They won't be yours, God is saying, because you're about to die. Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. That's the key. That's what I want you to see. Not rich towards God. That's what we mean when that's what it means when we read store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It means to be rich towards God. We'll unpack that a little more in a moment, but in general terms, I want you to see that this involves at least three things. There's so much that could be said here. What does it mean to be rich towards God? But I think it involves at least three things that are kind of major categories. The first of those is the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. Who is he? And how can I know him and therefore glorify him? And that really, that really can be found in one's devotion to scripture. That to, to devote your life to scripture is to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It is to be rich towards God because knowing God Is the basis for all of life. So the knowledge of God. To store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Is to do those things. To go about those things. That will contribute to a greater knowledge of God. That pleases the Lord. When we do that. So the knowledge of God. The character of God. It means to lay up treasures. In the sense that we cultivate. Within our lives. By the power of the Holy Spirit. A holy life. That what we read in the Beatitudes at the beginning of chapter 5, verses 3 to 12, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, the merciful, the peacemakers, those who endure in persecution, that these are the kinds of things that refine out a Christian character that images Jesus to do those things, to be about those things. Is to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. So knowledge of God. The character of God. And then finally the one that probably springs to mind most obviously. Is the work of God. That is we talked about last week. Zeal for people's salvation. What is the kingdom of God? We talked about conversion. And we talked about people being conformed to the image of Christ. What are we actively doing? To, to participate in what God is doing in saving sinners and conforming Christians to the image of Christ. This is the work of God. This is the kingdom work of God. To store up for ourselves treasures in heaven is to be about the work of God. So practically, what does this look like? I think we get a little a little more insight from 1 Timothy six, seventeen 17-19. It says this, As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty. By the way, let me just stop there for a moment. The truth is that most all of us are rich from the perspective of the whole world. So, yeah, there are folks who have more and folks who have less. But when you compare us in this society, in this civilization, in this country, to people all over the world, we are a rich, rich people. So sometimes it's better to think of yourself globally, to situate yourself globally than on your street, in your neighborhood or among your friends, the people, you know, because you might in that situation think, well, I'm not rich. The truth is that most all of us, comparatively speaking, are incredibly rich It says this as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And here's practically what that looks like. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, so he's telling it, that's what, that's what this is. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So, what does it look like? What does it really, what does it practically look like to do this? It's what I just read. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So, that's the first thing I want you to see that this is treasures, storing up treasures in heaven is storing up treasures towards God. The second thing I want you to see is that. We know this from the context that storing up heavenly treasures has to do with having God's reward in view. So remember chapter six, verse one, it says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. And then the Bible says in Hebrews 11.6. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God. Must believe that he exists. And that he rewards those who seek him. So the person who is storing up treasures in heaven. Is a person who is storing up treasures towards God. Who is living a life towards God. And it is a person who is conscious of God's reward. In faith. One of the things we discussed in our gospel community group some time ago is that it feels a little strange to think about doing things in the Christian life for a reward because we know that we are made righteous simply by grace through faith. Paul says in Ephesians 2 8 to 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith period and the works which we do he goes on to say in verse 10 come from God's preordaining before the foundation of the world. So we know that our salvation is entirely based on Christ and what he did for us, that all the works flow out of God's grace to us in Christ. So it feels a little uncomfortable when we begin to talk about do this and do that and the rewards are great. But here's the fact of the matter. Everywhere in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles hold out rewards for us as a motivator. Read it all throughout the New Testament. And here's the reason why. And it comes from what I just read in Hebrews. To live a life for God, conscious of his rewards, is to live a life in faith. Because we can't see God. We can't see his rewards. You can see the rewards of praying out in front of people. And they pat you on the back and tell you how holy and great you are. Just like those Pharisees and scribes. You feel that. That's tangible. That's a tangible reward and treasure. But God, we cannot see when we pray. We don't hear audible words from the Lord. Usually. We don't see him. We don't see Christ enthroned on the clouds of heaven coming down to receive his church. We don't see that. So to do things in this life unto the Lord, conscious of his rewards, is to have faith. That's exactly what it says in Hebrews. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So doing our works towards God, being conscious of the reward. So what is the opposite of these things? We're talking about storing up treasures in heaven. What's the opposite? Storing up treasures on the earth. What does that look like? And I think there are two main things. We just sort of flip it. The first is to pursue or collect or gather anything without reference to God. That should be convicting to all of us. How often are we about all kinds of activities and things and it really has nothing to do with God at all. There's not even a thought of God mixed in, much less all of it being done to God in worship. There's not even a thought of God in the entire pursuit. We're just sort of going about this. We're a Christian. But with regard to this particular pursuit, we're like a pagan. God is absent. God is unrelated. It is to be one. Listen to the words of Jesus again. It is to be one who lays up treasure. Listen to this closely. For himself. And is not rich towards God. That's the fundamental problem. Is we either grab and gather and store for ourselves. ...or for God. So much of what we do, we do for me. We do for me. For my present, for my future, for my satisfaction. It's amazing how often even the good things we do... ...we try to kind of make them intersect with our own good. We have maybe an option. uh, uh, We have an option of doing one, two, three, four different things... ...and we try to find a way, even subconsciously... ...to make these things for someone else's good... Benefit us to the highest degree. That's kind of innate in our hearts. As we are always doing what we're doing for ourselves. And what Jesus is saying here is that there is a fundamental difference. Between storing up for myself. And storing up unto God. Being rich towards God. The second thing that I think is entailed in storing up treasure on earth. As we said before. Is to have a disregard for or unbelief in God's rewards. Let me press you on that for just a moment. Do you ever think about God's rewards? Do you think about the life to come? Are you conscious of what he's promised to you? Does, do the rewards of God motivate you. To serve him. As the New Testament wants. As, as the Holy Spirit wants who authored the New Testament through men inspired by him, wants us to think in those terms, in faith. Do you think at all about the life to come? Or is it just a fairy tale? Like a, a distant Narnia kind of place that really sounds good. And maybe in those moments in church or those moments reading the Bible, it, just, it fills you with a little bit of happiness. But in real life, it's just right here. It's just earthly. It's just temporal. There is no life to come. There is no world of angels. There is none of that. It's just what we can touch, smell, feel, and taste. That is life. To go about life as though there are no eternal rewards. No life after this one. That is what it means to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. So what do we do? If you don't think about the world to come, if you don't think about the rewards that await the saints of God, what do you do? You try to amass as much as you can in this life. Because we all want to be happy. We all seek our own happiness. Going back to the ancient philosopher Aristotle. he, He was smart enough, wise enough to see that every human being by nature pursues his own happiness. So we'll either find that happiness in God or we will find that happiness in this world. When the rewards of heaven become distant. When heaven is squeezed out of the mind. What are we left with? Amassing. And amassing. And collecting. And gathering. And pursuing. And storing. In this life. Earthly things. We're all there. To a certain degree. But the main difference between earthly treasures and heavenly treasures. As Jesus describes them here. Has to do with their durability. That's the main point that Jesus wants to make. He wants to make a contrast regarding durability. So let's go there. The first thing we need to notice is this. Isn't it amazing that Jesus meets us where we are? He reasons with us on our level. And you see this in the passage that will follow on worry. Jesus doesn't just give us some abstract concepts and sort of say, get on up here, get on up here. Jesus comes down. Even in his incarnation, we see this. He comes down to us. He meets us exactly where we are. And Jesus is essentially saying this. Look, why would you devote your life to something that won't last? Come on. That's no good for you. Why would you do that? Instead... How about devoting your life to what will last forever? You know, in some ways, this is just rational. This is just wise. The same kind of argumentation Jesus will use with regard to worry. It is, frankly, stupid to worry. Jesus will say later in this chapter. He won't just make a... It'll be based on on a theological point. But he doesn't just make abstract points. He says, look, it's foolish to worry. Come on, don't do that. And he's saying the same thing here. Why pursue something that's going to fall apart, that won't last? Pursue what will last. This is for our good. God desires our good. That's the reason why the Beatitudes go blessed. That's where their Beatitudes, blessed, blessed. God desires our happiness. Do you believe that God desires your happiness? Not in some silly kind of way that has to do with ephemeral emotions and temporary circumstances. But God desires the ultimate glory and joy and bliss of you in his presence if you're a Christian. He desires that. And so Christ is here telling us as Christians, storing up treasures on earth will not make you happy. It will fail you. Store up treasures in heaven. So Jesus gives a stark contrast. Heavenly treasures will never be destroyed or taken away, whereas earthly treasures will inevitably be destroyed or taken away. And at the very least, this will happen when you die. So you may be thinking, no, I've got something that will last. It will last till the end. It will last forever. Well, it won't because it simply may not last as your possession because you're going to die. Every single one of you is going to die. Oh, now it sounds terrible. That's the truth. I'm gonna die. We're all going to die. It's gonna happen. Job 121 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. With nothing. Zero. It will not last. So Jesus puts before us here the incorruptible versus the corruptible, the imperishable versus the, per- the perishable. He puts the eternal up against the temporary. And to get this main point across, he gives us a number of images. And so that's where we get this moth and rust and thieves. He gives us these, these three images. And I think the first of those, the moth, is meant to sort of evoke a, an emphasis on, on fine clothing, So in that day and time, maybe less so today, although still the case, I'm sure. But then clothes were so, so valuable and important, especially if you had a fine garment. Remember that story of Jesus being crucified and the Roman soldiers are dividing up his garments? To us today, that sounds so weird because it's like, I mean, are the garments that nice? That he's wearing and they're probably all bloodied. And it just, it just doesn't, it doesn't jive with our contemporary thinking. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But the fact is that in that day garments were precious. They were valuable. And, and, and they were kept for a long period of time. And especially if those were, were fine garments like, like silk, for example, in the Roman Empire. What Jesus is saying here is that moths eat those clothes. They will not last. They will be eaten away. And then he talks about rust destroying, eating away metal. James 5, 1 to 3 says this. Come now, you rich. Now, he's not just talking to rich people in general. He's talking to rich people who hope in their riches and who mistreat the poor. This is what he says. I had to preface this because this is strong language. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. That's incredible language of judgment. You have laid up treasure in the last days. And I think implied there is you have laid up treasure for the wrath of God. And I want to say this, and this is very important. Every bit of treasure... That we lay up on earth, if we're not in Christ, for the person who is not in Christ, every bit of treasure that you lay up on earth will stand as a treasury of God's wrath against you on the day of judgment. This word rust really means eating away or consuming. So it may not be rust, rusting of metal, it may be the eating of crops. The the eating of flocks, the eating of of grain as it's being stored, and so it could be it could be a reference to locusts, worms, to rodents, or to predators who are taking away the flock. But the point is that the things of this world are eaten away; they are consumed by the things of this world. And then we have thieves breaking in and steal. The word here is actually digging through. And so some time ago, I mentioned to you that. In that day, people would build their houses out of mud bricks. And someone would, people, thieves would actually dig their way through the house. So it wasn't a matter of just busting out a window or, you know, knocking down the door. People would actually take sharp tools and they would dig through the side of the house. And they would get down into the house and they would take the valuables from there. So the, the verb is actually digging through. Thieves would come in and do this. These are the three images that Jesus wants to put vividly In front of us, finest, costliest garment eaten up by moths. The most precious metals, and all of our food and all of our precious things eaten up, and thieves taking what we value most. And Jesus covers the basics here, but how much more all of our luxuries? I mean, Jesus is talking here about the basics of life. How much more all of the little things that we treasure? So I want you to think about this. How often have you stumbled upon an item, maybe in the attic or in the garage or in storage somewhere, that was filled with memories of desire? Think about that. You pick up an item and it's been 15 years. And you realize, man. I remember how much I wanted that thing, how many hours I spent thinking about that thing, pursuing that thing, saving up for that thing. And there it is worn out, broken, useless and forgotten. How often has that happened in our lives? In fact, most of the things we can look at from the past are just that worn out, forgotten. By contrast, The heavenly rewards or treasures that we receive from the Lord in the life to come will never, ever fade. They will last forever. I like the way D.A. Carson explains this. Let me read this quote to you. He says, the treasures of the new heaven and the new earth are wonderful beyond our wildest expectation. Do you believe that? Wonderful. Beyond our wildest expectation. Sometimes the pages of scripture give us glimpses. Couched in glittering metaphor. As the resources of language are called up to tell us of things still barely conceivable. At other times. Scripture extrapolates the advanced tastes we enjoy here. And pictures love undiluted. A way of life utterly sinless. Integrity untarnished, work and responsibility without fatigue, deep emotions without tears, worship without restraint or disharmony or sham. The best of all, the presence of God in an unqualified and unrestricted personal way. Such treasures cannot be assailed by corrosion or theft. I want you to think about this. We finished two weeks ago or to when we were in this, this series. We finished on the last petition of the Lord's Prayer. And the last petition is lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from the evil one. And I would submit to you that one of the greatest schemes of the evil one in your life. Is to take away your belief in these riches in the life to come. God wants us to meditate on these things, to see these glories, to see these inconceivable treasures and riches in His presence forever, enjoying Him with the saints in glory. He wants these to be before us as we trust in Him. And one of Satan's greatest tactics, and I've seen it over and over again in my own life, one of His greatest tactics is to just get us kind of distracted with life. We forget about Him, we forget about His glory. We forget about the kingdom, the life to come. And so our zeal wanes and we find treasure somewhere else. I want to move now to the third point, which comes comes to the final verse, the idolatry. So we've looked at the activity, the durability, and the idolatry. These last two points I will go through pretty quickly because they kind of flow out of what we've said so far. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart, just to remind you, is the inner person. It's the whole person. It's the core of who you are. So if you want to kind of know what what is the deepest recess of your being, the Bible has a term for that. And it's heart. This is the foundation upon which all of your affections and your thinking and everything sits. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's what this means. That your collecting, gathering, pursuing, and investing gives you insight into the state of your heart. You know, there are a few things in the Christian life that act as a really true and pure thermometer or mirror or indicator. And here's the way you can know where your heart's at. It's it's, it's really simple. Look at the amount of earthly treasures that consume your feeling and your thinking and so forth. And that is the state of your heart. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The problem is not merely misplaced or unused time, energy, and resources. It's not a matter of, hey, I just need to take and move around some of this treasure. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm pursuing this world. I'm pursuing the things of this world and not God. It's not merely misplaced or unused time and resources. It is idolatry because it has to do with the heart. That's what I want you to see. Jesus is very clear that everything we say and everything we do proceeds from the heart. It all can be traced back to the heart. The problem is not how you spend your time. It's not how you spend your money. The problem is your heart. The problem is that there are some gods in there. That every day you wake up in the morning, put down your rug, your mat, and you prostrate yourself before these man-made gods. All the while, the Lord sits over to the side in a corner. Treasuring earthly things and not heavenly things is a matter of the heart. So let's dig into this a little. Where is your heart? What are your idols? Where is your treasure? I want to use some questions here from Kent Hughes, a commentator on this passage. And just want to kind of use these to get in a little bit to where our hearts are so that we can understand what we're talking about. So what occupies your thoughts when you have nothing else to do? Let's say that you come up, you know, for, the, for many of us, there are very few of those times when you have nothing else to do. Uh, but maybe you have this little slice of time here and there where you have nothing else to do. What just whoo, floods into your mind, takes over? And you begin to churn your mind around and around on that. That's your treasure. What occupies your daydreams? So you think about life. Where you're headed. What's going on? How things are going. Your plan. Your future. You think about all these things. You daydream. What does your mind go to? What does your mind flee to? That's your treasure. What is it that we Fret about most. What gets you really anxious? Makes the indigestion start going crazy. Or whatever else. Whatever your response is to stress. But you start to feel it. You start to feel the weight of stress. What is it that's causing that in your life? What do you most dread losing? What, what just terrifies you at night. In those, in those moments of kind of melancholy. And you're thinking to yourself. Oh, that would be awful. That would be Horrific. What are you just terrified of losing? What are the things that you measure yourself and others by? What's the test? As you talk and interact with other people, you're sizing them up. Where do you give them value? How do you ascribe them value? That's a, that says something about how you value yourself. And it says something about where you have your treasure. What is it that we know we cannot be happy without? Came here this morning, maybe you're just down. What is it? Just can't be happy unless this thing's different. I just can't be happy unless this thing's better. That's your treasure. That is an idol. So we see this first link between our treasure and our heart. Our treasure reveals our heart. And it reveals the idolatries of our heart. But I want you to see one more link between our treasure and our heart as we finish up this morning. And that brings us to our last point, the trajectory. Look at verse 21 again. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Remember when we looked at the topic of adultery and lust? We looked at that in Matthew 5, verse 28. Where Jesus says this, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart and one of the things that we discussed from that passage is that the eyes stand on both sides of the heart and here's what i mean the eyes follow the heart we know that if if a man is looking lustfully at a woman that's because of what's in his heart it's not just a matter of the eyes The eyes are simply following. Remember, everything we say and everything we do, Jesus says, comes from the heart. So the eyes follow the heart. But it's more than that, too. The eyes inform the heart. The eyes follow the heart, but then they also inform the heart. It's this terrible cycle of sin. And the same is true of our treasure. Our treasure doesn't just follow the heart. Yes, that's true. You look at your treasure and you can know where your heart is. But it's even more than that. It sets the future trajectory for your heart. The more and more that we walk out of here today and we, we lay up treasures on earth. We put our focus and our pursuing on things of this life. On ourselves rather than being rich towards God. The more that we do this, the colder and darker and drier and more earthly our hearts Come. And so we wake up one day and we just say, Man, I'm just in a bad place. God just seems so far away. What's going on? God, where are you? Why aren't you ministering to me? Why aren't you helping me? It's God's fault, right? It's God's fault. But you've been laying up treasures on earth for weeks and months and years and decades, and now it's God's fault that you feel dry and you feel cold. We treasure this world. And it darkens our hearts. One commentator said that we become what we cling to. And so when the heart clings to perishable, rotting things. The heart becomes like that which it pursues. We know that when the heart pursues the living God. That we are transformed into the divine nature. That we become like God. Inside and out. Sons of God, be perfect as He is perfect, Jesus says. We know that when our heart clings to God, we become like Him. And when our heart clings to perishable things, our heart begins to perish with them. So, where will you be in your walk with God in five years? Where will you be in your walk with God in ten years? Where will you be in your walk with God? When you're lying on that bed, if these are the circumstances and you're dying, where will you be with God? The answer can be found now. Look at your treasure and you will have your answer. That's where you're headed. That's where you're headed. Let's pray. Our Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you that you lay before us a glorious future. Filled with your presence. Filled with perfection. Filled with fellowship with the Lord Jesus. We praise you this morning, Father, that our hearts have been converted and changed. And that we have found that treasure in the field. That we have have taken hold of it and that we have buried it and sold everything that we have and purchased that field. Father, for those of us who are Christians, we praise you that by your grace you have converted us to treasure Christ. Yet, Father, we know that in this Christian life we often do not treasure Christ in practice. Father, we are so busy. About ourselves. So. With our own pleasures. And our own comforts. And our own futures. And our own objectives. And our routines. And father we just ask for grace. We need grace to repent. We ask for repentance. True heartfelt repentance. As we come to you this morning. At the Lord's table. That you will grant us that repentance. Which we seek. That we would store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Where. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. In Jesus' name, amen.